0: Hebrews chapter 10, if you're new with us, we're doing a brief six-week series on our privileges, responsibilities as members of the household of God. Last week, we looked at belonging from uh, Ephesians chapter 2. This week, we're looking at assembling. Uh, Next week, Pastor Strickland will be preaching on caring uh, from Galatians chapter 6. I have the privilege of preaching for our church plant in D.C. next week, Uh, and so we look forward to that, look forward also to hearing uh, from Dr. Strickland. Uh, We're going to pray together as we jump into this text in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. This is Donnie's favorite book of the Bible, Hebrews. So uh, I told him I hope I don't disappoint uh, the exposition today. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege it is to have your word. Where would we know about these truths apart from the Bible? We wouldn't. We need specific revelation about the gospel, and that's what you've given us in Holy Scripture. We're grateful for our high priest. We're grateful for what Jesus has done to give us access to God to cleanse our conscience and to to make us right with God and to make us part of his people. And we pray that today, Holy Spirit, you would come and illuminate our minds to your truth, burn it into our hearts, that we may be transformed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Some of you may recall uh, in the earlier days of Imago Day, we uh, helped uh, support a church plant in Frankfurt, Germany. It was led by a guy named Stefan Pius, who is now over the City to City Church Planting Network in all of Europe. Uh, but Stefan uh, became a good friend of ours and actually shared at a couple of Sunday morning gatherings and Sunday evening gatherings with us uh, when he was here to visit. He hosted one of our missionary care trips uh, in Frankfurt. And there was one particular conversation that I had with Stefan that really just came to mind this week as I began to think about the significance of our gatherings together. Uh, Stefan had been with us for, uh, just over the weekend. And at the time, we were meeting at Capitol, uh, just off Capitol Boulevard in the storefront. And so we were there for three services, the 9, 11, and 5, and and we did the same thing at the three services. And as we were uh, about to leave the parking lot, um, I I told Stefan, I said, man, you know, I I just wish we would have had some more time because he was leaving out the very next morning. And I said, I would love to have shown you some of my favorite restaurants here in the Triangle. I would love to have perhaps taken you to see some cool stuff like uh, maybe the Duke uh, Chapel over there or, you know, we could have had some fun uh, doing various things, maybe adventure landing or, you know, uh, whatever. And Stefan responded by saying, there's nothing greater you could have shown me. I just got to worship with the saints at Imago Day." He says, we got to enjoy the end for which we are created. There's nothing greater you could have shown me. I said, strong point. Strong point. <laughs> what could be greater? <clears throat> now you say, what makes it so great? Well, there are many things that makes it great, but one of the things, I need to use this again. One of the things that makes the gathering great is that there's more going on than meets the eye. This is not our text, but, but it's worth mentioning as we think about the significance of our gatherings. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, the writer says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, it would take a long time to unpack all of those phrases. But one of the things that the author is saying is that we have access to this invisible spiritual realm into this heavenly Jerusalem through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we are participating in this great assembly of the saints and angels, the saints who have died uh, in faith and are now in God's presence. The little phrase we use to summarize that we say in the creed is we enjoy the communion of saints. We are part of the people of God. And as we gather, we gather with that recognition. We gather with the recognition that this is but a little foretaste of the greater gathering that is to come. Now, the writer of Hebrews, uh, we don't know who that is because he or she is not mentioned. Uh, There are many opinions out there about the writer of Hebrews. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit wrote it. Um, And he is uh, a preacher, it seems. As the end of the letter, he says, I appreciate you, brothers, that uh, that you bear with my word of exhortation. And like a preacher, he says, I've written you only briefly. It's it not a very long sermon. But it actually is quite long if you just read it out loud. But one of the things that the writer is doing in this word of exhortation is exhorting the people to persevere in faith. To not lose sight of the hope of the gospel. To, to not drift away and be carried off by the deceitfulness of sin. He has a real concern that some of these Christians are not persevering in faithfulness. And there are a couple of reasons why they were, were being tempted to drift away. One is some were wanting to revert to their old Jewish ways, and hence the emphasis in the, the book of Hebrews is about the superiority of Jesus, that he's greater and better than any priest, any institution in the Old Testament. Don't revert back. The other problem was apathy, sluggishness. You see a number of uh, Uh, verses that speak to uh, uh, encouraging uh, God's people to to not grow into a spirit of apathy, like Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an, uh, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And then a third danger was the threat of persecution. And this is why the writer says things at the end of the letter like, let us go outside the camp. And bear the reproach that Jesus bore, the one who went outside the camp for us. Let us offer up the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And when you put all that together, one of the results of these temptations was the temptation to neglect the gathering of the church. Why? Because, well, you're just apathetic and lazy. Or because of the threat of persecution, which is probably the more common issue in this context. That if they gather together, they would be persecuted as many of our brothers and sisters are around the world today. And the writer doesn't want this to be a habit of neglecting the regular gatherings of the church. And so because God loves us, he warns us. He instructs us. He corrects us. Now, maybe you're here today. Maybe you would say, Pastor, I haven't stopped attending. I never started. (laughs) This is my first time. Uh, Well, we're glad you're here. Uh, we have people regularly here that will say, oh, we've never, I've never been to a Christian worship service. And so this text shows us how God makes worshipers through Jesus Christ. And maybe you can't imagine yourself being meeting together regularly with brothers and sisters, but you may be surprised by God's grace. He turns you into a worshiper. You know, I, I was in the gym a couple weeks ago and talking to a fellow, and you know we kind of graduated to fist bumping each other. Both had the AirPods in. And then you graduate to take it out and actually have a conversation. And uh, the guy said about 30 words. I think uh, 30% of them were cuss words as, as he was having small talk with me. And then he said, uh, man, you look so familiar. Um, I, I, I've seen you somewhere. He said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. He said, no, I've never seen you. Never seen you before. <laughs> But how many of us used used to be that guy? I used to be that guy. I did not look forward to Sunday gatherings. I did not look forward to corporate worship. And now I can't wait to assemble with God's people. I see it as the high point of the week. How does that happen? Jesus. He changes our lives. Changes our priorities. And this text shows us who Jesus is and what he's done and how that transforms us. There are three exhortations. You see this in the text in English with the phrase, let us. The first one, let us draw near. The second, let us hold fast our confession. And the third, let us consider one another in order to provoke one another to love and good deeds. These, as it's been said, are the main exhortations of the epistle. In verses 19 to 21, the writer summarizes what he said previously about Jesus. In shorthand form, he says, therefore, since all of this is true, what I've just said to you for ten and a half chapters, here are the implications. Here's the so what. Here's what we are to do in light of, these, uh, in light of who Jesus is and what he has done. And they're all, they all have a corporate emphasis, you see. The pronouns, us and we and our, meeting together, encouraging one another, stirring up one another. In light of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, here's, here are the things that we are to devote ourselves to. So Jesus motivates these responses. His work in the past, in his uh, dealing with our sin problem, and his coming in the future as the day draws near. We look back at what Jesus has done. We look forward to what Jesus will do. And in light of that, we draw near. In light of that, we hold fast to our confession. And in light of that, we encourage one another, especially in our regular gatherings. Now, you notice also, before we look at these three exhortations, the the holy triad of faith, hope, and love uh, appear in in these three exhortations. We are to draw near with full assurance of faith. We're holding fast to our confession of hope and we're stirring one another up to love. These are three things to give our lives to. Three things to give our lives. Draw near to God in worship. Hold fast to your confession of hope. Boldly as one who's not ashamed to bear the name Christ and stir one another up to love and good deeds. Let's look at them together. First of all, let us draw near to God. The big shift in the letter is noted there in verse 19 with the word, therefore. Again, in light of what he has said and then he gives us this summary of what Jesus has done. Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. So we see here that Jesus has done two things for us that are massive. First of all, Jesus has given us access. And secondly, Jesus has given us advocacy. He's given us access, he says, to the holy places. We have confidence to enter God's presence, not because of who we are and what we've done. We have confidence only because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We enter only because of the blood of Jesus, his perfect once and for all sacrifice. Because he said it is finished, he has opened up a way for us to approach God in worship. Only the high priest and that only once a year could enter the holy places. And an old old covenant believer would not have thought about being bold enough to enter the holy of holies. A couple of people tried it and it didn't work. We are incinerated in the presence of God. The only way we have access to God and enjoy the fellowship with God is that Jesus Christ, our priest, offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice, opening up a way for us to know God and to worship God. And we can do it with confidence, not only when we had a good day yesterday and had a quiet time, But every day, if we're actually in Christ, we have confidence because it's not based upon our performance, but upon his. And this is a privilege, isn't it? So when you lack confidence in worship as a Christian, go back to the gospel and rehearse it. It's not what you've done. It's what Jesus has done. Since this is true, draw near to God. There's nothing preventing you from drawing near to God. The way has been opened up. And we can worship him in a way greater than those high priests in the Old Testament. What a privilege it is. We should marvel at this. What are we doing in the presence of God? We have no business being here. But because of Jesus, we do. You know, in that great theological movie, Fast and the Furious (laughs) 9. I've been waiting to say that all week. It, it, this, these movies, you know, they're just ridiculous. Not, it, you, you watch f- scene after scene in it's like, that, that couldn't have happened. And we know it couldn't happen. And they're just still making more ridiculous movies. And in the last one, they really jumped the shark as they went to space. And they go to space with this uh, souped-up uh, Pontiac Fiero. They, they attach a rocket to a Pontiac Fiero. And Tej and, and Roman go to space and, and they're up there, it's a great scene, and they're just like, what are we doing here? How did we get here? And when it comes to the holy places, we ask a similar question. How can we draw near? You have a better chance today of going to space, as it's been seen recently, than to be in the holy place. You have enough money, you can go to space, right? Right? But the only way we go to the holy place, the only way we draw near to God is Jesus. He's given us access. He's opened it up. It's a new and living way. It's new in that it departs from the old covenant practices. It's living in that Jesus is alive. We worship the living God. He's made us alive. He's opened up this new and living way through his flesh, through his sacrifice, the, the curtain was torn when Jesus was crucified, right from top to bottom, giving us access to God. So draw near to God. He's opened it up. And then there's advocacy. He's also mentioned in 21 as being, again, our great high priest, a great theme in Hebrews. And we know one of the things the high priest does for us is he intercedes for us. I mean, it would be enough if Jesus would have sacrificed for us, but now he's continuing to work on our behalf. This very moment he's interceding for us. He rules over the house of God. He rules over his people. He dwells among his people. We have confidence because of what he is doing for us right now. So draw near to God. Now what does this mean to draw near to God? Well, again, in the language of the Old Testament, this is the language of a priest drawing near to God in worship. I think you could summarize it by saying, in light of what Jesus has done, worship God. Worship God. And he gives us four principles on worship. First of all, worship must be focused on our God. Let us draw near to God. And that should not sound like a burden to us, should it? That should sound like a privilege to us. I mean, I love how he just went phrase after phrase, and now he's going to give us something to do. And what he gives us to do is not a heavy ethical exhortation. It's to worship. In light of what Jesus has done, what do we need to do? We worship our God. And we know that it is in worship that we experience our greatest pleasure, our highest good. Delight yourself in the Lord. In his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand our pleasures forevermore. Eric Little, the runner, said, when I run, I feel his pleasure. Some of you are like, I can never feel that way. But when we worship, we feel his pleasure. In light of who Jesus is and what he's done, continue to draw near to God in worship. The author loves this phrase, draw near to God. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. 7.25, he is able, Jesus, to save the uttermost of those who draw near to God through him. And then chapter 11, verse 6, and without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. God has done the unthinkable to bring us near to himself. He's offered up his own son. Draw near to God in worship. The psalmist said, my soul thirsts for God. When can I approach God? When can I stand before him? And for the Christian, it's every day we worship him. Second principle about worship here is worship is to be focused on God wholeheartedly. Notice how he says in verse 22, we draw near with a sincere or true heart, meaning our hearts are in the right place, meaning that, you know, there's a connection here with truth and heart, with with our belief and our affections, and both of them go together. We worship God in spirit and in truth, don't we? God doesn't want some empty-headed emotionalism that's devoid of truth. But he also doesn't want empty hearted intellectualism. We need light and heat. We need a true heart. We need affections and we need theology. But the purpose of theology is not to make the head fat, but the heart right. And God wants us to worship him wholeheartedly. Rend your hearts and not your garments, Joel said. It's not about externals, it's about your heart. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees saying, you worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Now we want to be modern day psalmists. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Draw near. Christian, don't don't cultivate a cold relationship to God. Love him deeply. Commune with God. Enjoy God. Avoid the drift into apathy. By drawing near to God in worship wholeheartedly. The third thing he says about worship is, is that it is characterized by Christ-centered confidence. Again, we're back to this note of what do we, how, how could, you know, what are we doing in God's presence? He says we, it is to be done with the full assurance of faith. With conviction, with the certainty of faith. As we remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us, we realize we belong here. We can worship. We're welcome. And so don't be tentative in your worship of God. We have a freedom to worship God because we have the full assurance of faith. And then the final thing he says about worship is that it is preceded by purification. He assumes this has already taken place. This is how God makes worshipers with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. There's likely an allusion here to baptism as scholars have pointed out. Our baptism symbolizes this inward purity that we have. We have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We make bold confession of that faith, Allah, verse 23, in a public display of baptism. How is it that we get to enjoy worship? It's because of what Christ has done to deal with our evil consciences, to forgive us of our sins, to make us new people, those who... We're dead in sin, but have been raised to walk in newness of life. The brothers and sisters, there is nothing to prevent you from drawing near to God passionately. And so that's the choice that really that Hebrews puts before us. Drift away or draw near. Don't drift away. Don't drift away, but draw near. Draw near by the means that God has given us to draw near. Don't neglect scripture. Don't neglect prayer. Don't neglect the gatherings. Don't neglect serving. Don't be fixated on an idol, but fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Do the things you need to do to draw near to God because the, the big problems have been solved, the big barriers have been removed. And now let us fix our eyes on Jesus and run our race passionately. Draw near. Second exhortation, this one won't go as long, don't worry. Let us hold fast to our confession. The author here urges us to persevere in hope. Again, to to not drift away, but to persevere in hope. To hold fast to our confession without wavering. That is to be stable and steadfast. A consistency. To persevere, but to be motivated by hope. Hope is what gives us motivation to persevere. We know there's suffering now. There may be opposition and persecution now, but the glory of God awaits us. And so let us hold fast to our confession of hope. And we know that hope is not like we use hope today. You know, I hope the Washington Nationals baseball team who made all those trades, I hope that works out in the future. I have my doubts. No, hope in the New Testament is a settled confidence. It is a certainty. We know that he who promised is faithful. Faithful. He will make sure that our hope is not disappointed. And so don't give up on your confession. I think there's clearly a a kind of a a public aspect to this exhortation. In light of the, the threat of persecution in the original context here, the writer is saying, don't be ashamed to boldly profess your faith in Jesus. And we too may find ourselves in some unfriendly surroundings and we must never shirk back from telling the world that we belong to Jesus. I love that the writer says earlier that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and let's never be ashamed to call him savior. A word to you students. I know anybody can cave into temptation and not boldly confess the name of Jesus, but it's certainly hard in your shoes. You're going to have certain friends that want you to do things, you know, are not in alignment with the scriptures, have temptations to cave into peer pressure You may be the only one standing, but hold fast to your confession of hope without wavering and realize that a little temporary mockery right now or ridicule or alienation will seem just but light and momentary in light of the glory of God that awaits his faithful. We have to have hope if we're going to persevere. And our hope is a real hope. The the writer keeps talking about hope in this letter. God is bringing many sons to glory, he says. We're partakers of a heavenly calling. We're eagerly awaiting Christ's return. We're seeking the city that is to come. And this hope has grounding, you see. He said it's rooted in the fact that God is faithful. Our hope is reliable. It is sustained by believing that God will keep his promises. A couple of times in the book of Joshua, this this verse appears. This is Joshua 21, 45. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Every word of God proves true. Hold fast to your confession. Hebrews eleven eleven. By faith, Sarah received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Our God is faithful. Let's remind each other of the promises of God that we may spur one another on. Our God is trustworthy. He's faithful. I love the end of chapter 10 we're looking at here. The writer says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, persecution, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You realize whatever kinds of possessions we have in this life, they pale in comparison to the better possession and the abiding one that awaits us. Let's not get too wrapped up in the things of this life because we seek the city that is to come. Hold fast to your confession of hope. Speak God's promises to one another. The best is yet to come for the Christian. Now the third exhortation. Let us consider one another. I like how the CSB renders this, let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. So there's thoughtful consideration for the purpose of provoking one another, spurring one another on to love and good works. Several things to see in this verse. It's interesting, isn't it, that this verse, this verse is so others-focused, and it's a good word in today's consumeristic Christianity. Our assemblies should never be selfish. Selfish. The question should not be, what can I get, but how can I encourage others? The question is not, what can I get from the assembly, but what can I contribute? Okay? Stir up. He uses a very interesting word here, rendered incite or provoke or spur. It's this idea of, again, provoking one another, parallel phrase down in verse 25 encouraging one another. Let's never downplay the, the significance of encouraging. To what end? so that love and good works may happen. So that brothers and sisters may not drift away, but may remain faithful to him who called them. Consider here four brief applications of stirring up one another to love and good deeds. First of all, this involves deliberate thought. Consider, give attention to this matter. It's the same word used in chapter three, verse one, consider Jesus, right? Now, some of you are really good gift givers. I'm not the best gift giver. My wife is a very good gift giver. And one of the things that marks a good gift giver is people, they study people. They know what people may like. They're very thoughtful in what they give. Whereas others of us just give an Amazon card. Right? <laughs> but they know that one size doesn't fit all. Every person is different. And so it is in the church. And this means we know some people it means we, we are around each other at regular gatherings so that we can be alert to burdens that they're carrying that we may uh, help, help alleviate or uh, a need that we may meet. And every day is a new opportunity for us because people change, circumstances change. So if we're going to do this verse well, it requires some thought. Secondly, it's the responsibility of all of God's people. This is not this, just for the super-Christians, <laughs> not just for extroverts or people with certain personality traits. This is for all of God's people, as he says, let us do this. Let us share in this, this work of mutual uh, encouragement. Thirdly, you notice that the primary, it is one of the primary purposes of our gatherings. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near meeting together the greek word for that phrase is epi you can hear the word synagogue there when you assemble together when you gather together heavy emphasis on this idea throughout the new testament especially books like first corinthians you keep seeing that phrase when you come together when you come together and apparently some in uh in the in this context we're neglecting the privilege again due to persecution, the fear of if we meet together, we may encounter persecution or simply by apathy. And so the writer doesn't want the hearers and us to not fall into this habit. We all know that habits form us good ones and bad ones can form us. And so let's, I would just encourage you to develop good habits to, to not only be present, but Consider getting adequate sleep if possible, right? To anticipate drama in the minivan on the way here. To, to, to do something special on Sundays. And, and I don't limit this verse, by the way, just to Sunday gatherings. This, this is really written to in a house church context. I think it applies to all of our regular gatherings and small groups and so on. One of the purposes of being together in all of our gatherings is to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Obviously, there are exceptions to this. We experienced a major one this past year with a pandemic. There could be sickness, traveling, being deployed, being on mission, being, being vulnerable. But ordinarily, when you can meet together physically, make that your habit. That's your habit. And realize that it is a privilege to do so. Listen to what Bonhoeffer says in Life Together. It is by the grace of God that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly in this world to share God's word and sacrament. Not all Christians receive this blessing. The imprisoned, the sick, the scattered lonely, and the proclaimers of the gospel in heathen lands stand alone. They know that the visible fellowship is a blessing. The physical presence, Bonhoeffer says, of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. The prisoner, the sick person, the Christian in exile sees in the companionship of a fellow Christian a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. It is grace and nothing but grace that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brothers and sisters. It is grace that we get to enjoy this privilege. And you notice here the the emphasis on our meetings together is not he doesn't emphasize preaching, which is obviously one way that we try to stir up one another, or singing, which we also try to do, but it's the one anothering. That is emphasized in this verse. Each person in the congregation actively trying to stir up one another. So this whole idea of, you know, I just kind of get there when the service starts and I leave when it's over and I don't want to bother anyone and I don't want anyone bothering me. Just give me a decent sermon and don't bore me. The writer of Hebrews will not allow that attitude. There is a mutual encouragement that should take place with other brothers and sisters. This is essential for our well-being and their well-being. And mutual encouragement cannot take place in isolation. It takes place when we are together. And I must mention also that the writer has here a sense of danger when he gives this exhortation. There is a dangerous habit if you are neglecting the regular assemblies of the church. Apostasy is frequently mentioned in the book of Hebrews as people who had professed faith but obviously did not have real faith and eventually drifted away from God. And one of the early signs of people drifting away from God is the neglect of the assembly. Listen to what Lane says, the New Testament scholar. The writer regarded the desertion of the communal meetings as utterly serious. It threatened the corporate life of the congregation and almost certainly was a prelude to apostasy. You Think about that. The neglect, when you don't have to neglect, to do this habitually may be a prelude to apostasy. And so let us heed this word and not forsake. Gathering together for what purpose? That we may encourage one another, stir one another up. The final thing he says about this is that it is to be done in view of the final day. As we see the day of Jesus Christ, beloved, the day is drawing near. So let us draw near to God. The day is drawing near. So let's hold fast to our confession of hope. The day is drawing near. So let's encourage one another. Especially when we gather together. The day. In the Old Testament is portrayed as the day of judgment. The day of the Lord as the minor prophets call it. And in the New Testament it's identified as the day of Jesus Christ. Both a day of judgment and of salvation. In light of the day of Jesus Christ, don't abandon Christ and his people. Instead, be faithful to Jesus Christ. Spur on your brothers and sisters. Receive encouragement from your brothers and sisters, knowing that one day you will see Jesus Christ. And you will not regret on that day having drawn near to God wholeheartedly. You will not regret on that day holding fast to your confession of hope. You will not regret on that day being faithful to encourage your brothers and sisters. As you recall, Luther says, there are two days on my calendar, this day and that day. And I live this day in light of that day. And when you're having a bad day, remember that day. Or a series of bad days. Or a bad life. Remember that the day is drawing near. And we encourage one another. This is one of the ways we do spur on one another, right? As we remind one another of the hope that we have. And that one day our little gatherings will give way to glory as the glory of God covers the earth, as the waters cover the seas, and we see all of the redeemed from all the ages gathered together in worship from every people, tribe, language, and nation. And we will be glad on that day. We, we, we said, Lord Jesus, I'll not be ashamed of you. Lord Jesus, I'll give my life to you. Lord Jesus, I'll devote myself to your word. Brothers and sisters, we have a great high priest. Look what he's done to give us access to God. Look what he's done to make us his people. And we have a great king in Jesus Christ who's coming again. And all of our suffering will give way to glory. May he find us faithful in this present life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your promises, for your instruction, for the truthfulness of your word and the timeliness of your word. Father, give us people at Imago Day who draw near to God wholeheartedly. Who without wavering hold fast to their confession of hope and who love being together, spurring one another on in view of the coming day of Jesus Christ. Write these truths on our hearts, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.